0: If you value the world's applause more than God's approval, you will abandon God and God's people. God is the ultimate authority, and both ruler and people are accountable to God. Okay, fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to 2 Kings, 2 Kings 11, this is going to be, um, we're going to be studying, as you know, First and 2 Kings, the book of the Bible that records the history of the monarchy. Let me give you a little context. King Solomon died around 931 BC. The unified kingdom of Israel at that point split into two parts the northern kingdom, 10 northern tribes were known as Israel, the two southern tribes were known as Judah. There's a number of dating issues with this. Some people say it happened earlier than later. We're going to go with the traditional dating that said that was about 931. So that measures the beginning of the divided kingdom into the northern and southern kingdoms. Now when good King Jehoshaphat died, he was of Judah, his son Joram, also known as Jehoram, became king in 853 BC. He was aged 32 years old at that time. Years earlier, Jehoshaphat had made a political alliance with the northern kingdom of Israel. He sealed the deal by arranging for his son Joram to marry a princess named Athaliah, who was the daughter of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. She, like her parents, was a Baal worshiper, and she influenced Joram to do a great deal of evil. Joram's first act as king was a despicable act. He slaughtered all his younger brothers, all six of them. In order to eliminate any possible threat to his rule. Apparently, not much of good King Jehoshaphat's character uh, had uh, rubbed off on his son. So, God pronounced judgment on him and he died in great pain after only eight years as king. Now, his youngest son named Ahaziah was made king in his place. Normally, the oldest son is crowned king, but Ahaziah's Older brothers had already all been slaughtered by Arabian invaders that uh, invaded Judah due to God's judgment. Uh, by the way, in case you didn't know that, sometimes having royal blood led to a reduced life expectancy. It's a Pretty tough job description. Uh, Ahaziah's mother was Athaliah, and she and her counselors had influenced Ahaziah to do a great deal of evil. Upon the death of her husband, Joram, Athaliah is now the queen mother, and she has the vast influence in Judah's royal court. In the nation of Judah, in the nation of Israel, I want you to go north now. In the nation of Israel, Jehu has been anointed king at God's command. Jehu's initial job description as king was to destroy all the male descendants of Ahab due to their extreme wickedness and their refusal to repent. Now, King Ahaziah is the current king of Judah because his father has been killed by God for his evil. He decides to go visit his uncle Joram, the king of Israel. Jehu killed them both since they were both descendants of Ahab. Understand that there are many names in in here that get confusing. There are two King Jorams and there are two King Ahaziahs. The king of Joram of Israel is Ahab's son and he's Athaliah's brother. Joram of Judah is King Jehoshaphat's son, Athaliah's husband, and Ahaziah's father. You got all that? Yeah, very confusing. Here's what's important. Both of them are evil. Jehu, which we're going to do next week, kills Joram of Israel, and God himself executes Joram of Judah with a painful disease of the bowels, that resulted in his death after two years. Now, the biblical text describes King Joram with a phrase, you never want on your gravestone. They described his death with the word, these words, quote, he departed with no one's regret. That would not be a good epitaph for your gravestone or your life. So let's pick up the narrative in chapter 11, verse 1. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal offspring. But Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, also known as Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death, and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. So they hid him from Athaliah, and he was not put to death. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord six years while Athaliah was ruling over the land. Now in the seventh year Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of hundreds of the Kerites and of the guard and brought them to the house of the Lord. Then he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's son. He commanded them saying, this is the thing you shall do. One third of you who come in on the Sabbath shall keep watch over the king's house. One third shall also be at the gate sure and one-third at the gate behind the guard shall keep watch over the house for defense. Two parts of you, even all who go out on the Sabbath, shall also keep watch over the house of the Lord for the king. Then you shall surround the king, each with his weapon in his hand, and whoever comes within the rank shall be put to death, and be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. Here's the first principle. Effective change depends on prayer, planning, and persistence. So, Jehu, the king of Israel, has killed Ahaziah, and now Athaliah, the queen mother, instigates a coup. She's determined to wipe out David's royal dynasty. She believes that if she is ruling Judah, she can, number one, better protect herself from Jehu, because she's already seen how Jehu has killed her uh, father and her mother, as well as Ahab's sons. She's also ambitious to rule, and she wants to establish Baal worship in Israel, in Judah, because, remember, she is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, who imported uh, Baal worship in Israel. So she orders the massacre of every male who has royal blood, every legitimate heir who can threaten to rule. I don't know if you realize this, but this means that she ordered the murder of all her grandchildren, specifically her grandsons. This is a really nice grandma, right? Now, this is a disaster on multiple levels, and here's why. Number one, murder is evil. Number two, murdering your own flesh and blood is unthinkable. Even more so, God had promised David that all his descendants would rule over Judah and Israel forever. If Athaliah was able to destroy all of David's lineage, then God's word would be broken. However, God's promises will never be broken, and he has already raised up someone to carry out his will. The text says, it gives you a name, verse 2, Jehoshaphat. She is a princess. She's the daughter of the former king, Joram. And she's the half-sister of the murdered king, Ahaziah. And she's the wife of Jehoiada, the high priest. A lot of J's in there. She's at the palace when Athaliah gives the order to execute the entire royal family who is an heir of the throne. So the text says, notice this, she stole her her nephew Joash out from the group of heirs that were being executed. He seems to have been about one year old because he took the throne at seven and she reigned for six years. So he's one year old at this point in time and she physically grabbed him up and ran out of the room apparently. And it says she hid him and his nurse in, quote, the room of the beds, the room of the beds or the bedroom at that point in time, verse 2. And this was not a, a bedroom where you slept in, it was a closet. It was a closet where they used to store unused bedding. It was a storeroom. So it wasn't used regularly, and therefore it made a very secure hiding place because it wasn't often used. Here's the important point. Joash, who's one year old, is the last living heir in King David's royal lineage. The only one. We are one life away from not having a lineal heir in David's family tree, and God had promised David, there will be an heir on the throne from your family tree forever. God better make sure this one survives, and he does. He was hidden in the house of the Lord for six years. As he grew up, he probably played with other children around the temple, no one being the wiser. King Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, is ruling over God's people in Judah. And she is wicked. She stops all the temple services. There's no more sacrificial system. Furthermore, she plunders God's house. She goes into the temple and uses it as a source of building materials for a temple to Baal that she's building next door. So she literally plunders God's house of its treasures. Now, Jehoiada is the high priest, and he is a faithful and courageous man. By the way, the name Jehoiada means Yahweh knows, or God knows. And you're going to find out that during this six-year period, Jehoiada was patiently praying and waiting on God's will and God's timing. Can you imagine a high priest of Israel praying and living under a six-year Rule of someone who hates God, establishes Baal worship, and plunders God's house. And he prayed and waited for six years, waiting on God's will and God's timing. It must have grieved him to see evil ruling over the land, but his name means God knows. Have you ever said about your circumstances or the circumstances of this world, God knows? God knows. God is not ignorant of what's going on in this world. God knows what's going on. That's what Jehoiada's names mean. And I think often he said, God, you know what's going on in this land. And I know that you will keep your promises to David and reinstate the rightful heir on the throne. It's important to realize that this plan that is executed here shortly was not Jehoiada's plan, it was God's plan. God undoubtedly told Jehoiada how to restore the throne to David's family and remove Athaliah from power. So about 835 B.C., he calls the secret meeting of the five officers in charge of the temple, the so-called temple guard. And he makes them swear an oath that they will, number one, do what he says, and number two, keep all this a secret. And then he shows them the king. Can you imagine? Everybody thinks the royal line is dead. The whole nation thinks there's no hope, and he shows them the seven-year-old Joash. And he sends word then throughout all the land that all the Levites living in Jerusalem, as well as the leaders of Judah's clans, are to come to Jerusalem on a specific Sabbath day. Now, each one of these officers commands a hundred soldiers, so we're talking a total in this arrangement here, uh, beginning in verse four of about 500 soldiers total. Two companies, about 200 soldiers, are usually on duty guarding the temple for about a week at a time. And they rotated shifts every Shabbat. Every Sabbath, another group came on and they rotated off. And Jehoiada says, no, no. On this specific Sabbath, you're going to stay on duty to guard the king. By the way, I'm bringing in a third company to guard the palace. I'm bringing in a fourth company to guard the foundation gate called Shur, which led from the palace to the temple area, and the fifth company of hundred soldiers is going to assemble behind the guardhouse. Now, to somebody watching, this seems like just another normal Sabbath, other than there's a lot of extra security around, right? There's a lot more extra guards around. He wanted security for Joash's anointing and his inauguration. Now, this plan was a result of six years of prayer, and persistence and waiting on the Lord, now it had to be implemented. And I want you to notice in chapter 11, verse 9, how this scene is described in great detail by the author of 2 Kings, verse 9. So the captains of hundreds did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded, and each one of them took his men who were to come in on the Sabbath, with those who were to go out on the Sabbath, and came to Jehoiada the priest. The priests gave to the captains of hundreds the spears and shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. The guards stood each with his weapons in his hand from the right side of the house to the left side of the house, by the altar and by the house around the king. Then he brought the king's son out and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they made him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. When Athaliah heard the noise of the garden of the people, she came to the people in the house of the Lord. She looked, and behold, the king was standing by the pillar according to the custom, with the captains and the trumpeters beside the king, and all the people of the land rejoiced and blew trumpets. Then Athaliah tore her crows and cried, Treason! Treason! And Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of hundreds who were appointed over the army and said to them, Bring her out between the ranks, and whoever follows her, put to death with the sword. For the priest said, Let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. So they seized her, and when she arrived at the horse's entrance of the king's house, she was put to death. Here's the principle. In this world, there is an unceasing war between righteousness and wickedness. In this world... There is an unceasing war between righteousness and wickedness. If you love good, you will fight evil. If you love good, you will fight evil. Another way of saying that is there is no neutrality when it comes to righteousness and wickedness. It's very clear here that god's king joash represents righteousness and athaliah is operating in the realm of satan and she represents wickedness and there ultimately can be no compromise between righteousness and wickedness ultimately you will choose and i will choose every day what who you will serve no one can serve two masters Jehoiada understands that conflict, and that's why the king is so heavily protected by heavily armed soldiers. He gives them weapons that were taken out of David's, that David had put in storage to use as additional armor. There's a phalanx of soldiers from right to left surrounding the king. And when everything is ready, they bring out the king and show them to the people. Now, I want you to notice that Jehoiada does three things. That are very important in this arrangement. First, he puts the crown on Joash's head. A crown, for those of you who have watched that series, a crown represents authority. A crown goes on the head of a king or a queen and it represents rule, the ability, the authority to rule, and it's a visible sign that Joash is the rightful king. You just don't go put a crown on someone's head, they have to have the right to wear the crown. And in this particular case, Joash's right to wear the crown was that he was born in the royal line of David. He was God's choice for this purpose. Number two, it says that Jehoiada gave Joash the testimony. That's a copy of the law of Moses. Um, And God had commanded every king of Israel to literally not only have a copy of the law, but write it out in longhand, right? and keep a copy of the law with them all the days of their life, and read it every day so that they would be careful to do exactly what the law said. They were to be guided by God's word as they ruled over God's people. Third thing Jehoiada did is he anointed Joash by pouring oil on his head. Now you'll notice within the context of scripture, a priest or a prophet usually anoints um, the king over the people anointing was an outward sign or symbol that God had chosen and set apart that person for a specific holy purpose, in this case, ruling over his people. I don't know if you have noticed this, but in Scripture, oil often represents the Holy Spirit. Many, many times in the Bible, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, so anointing with oil can symbolize the Holy Spirit coming upon someone to empower them to fulfill their God-given job description. But in Scripture, you will always see spiritual leaders having priority over political leaders. Spiritual leaders, prophets and priests, anoint kings or civic or political leaders. In Israel, earthly kings did not possess unlimited authority. They operated under the authority of spiritual authority, and that came from submission to God's word, the law that was written down, or God's word that was spoken by God's prophets and priests. Now, you'll notice that Joash was God's choice as king, but he was also the people's choice. Jehoiada staged this coronation on the Shabbat, on the Sabbath day, during a major religious festival in Judah. And he had a lot of reasons for doing that. Number one... If you're going to institute a coronation of God's king, you want God's people to be present. And on major religious festivals, loyal, God-fearing Jews would make sure and come to the temple to worship, and Jehoiada wanted to make sure there was a large contingent of people that were loyal to the Lord at the temple that would support the return of David's family as king. And it says, they clapped and shouted for joy, and long live the king! And they said they made so much noise that Athaliah, in the in the in the palace next door, heard it, and she came to investigate. Seems like her and her followers were completely taken by surprise. Which was Jehoiada's point: we want to do this without uh, interference from them. And it says when she saw the young king standing on a raised platform, in the court, uh, with a crown on his head, she knew it was all over, and she tore her clothes as a sign of loss and grief, and said what? Treason, treason. Now this is rich. I mean, this is ironic. She thought she was the one being betrayed and usurped, when in reality she had murdered her own grandchildren in order to seize the throne. What's wrong with this picture? She was the one guilty of treason. Have you noticed that sin corrupts rational thought? When people are in the middle of sin, Christian or non-Christian, when you are practicing sin, it corrupts your rational thinking. And you tell yourself all sorts of lies to justify behavior that you know is wrong. And if you think as Christians we do that from time to time when we're disobeying, the world does it 24-7. They don't have the Holy Spirit guiding or directing them, and they refuse to follow the Word of God which gives them wisdom. So we have a saying here, sin makes you stupid. And it really does. It makes you irrational. And her own evil mind had deceived her in believing that she was the rightful heir, and that these people that were anointing the king were committing treason against her. It tells you how corrupt evil is to rational thought. And of course, the most corrupt of all is Satan, who believes his own lies. So Jehoiada then commands the soldiers to remove her from the temple without any bloodshed. They didn't want to shed blood in the temple. That would desecrate the temple. Anybody who tries to help her would be executed. So they seized her, took her out, and at the horse's gate of the king's house, they executed her. It's important to understand, it's not just enough to good enough to get rid of evil. You have to replace it with good. How do we do that? Verse 17. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people, that they would be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people. All the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down, his altars and his images, and they broke in pieces thoroughly and killed Mattan the priest of Baal before the altars, and the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord." He took the captains of hundreds, and the charites, and the guards, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, and came by the way of the gate of the guards to the king's house. And Joash sat on the throne of the kings. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, for they had put Athaliah to death with the sword at the king's house." Jehoash, or Joash, was seven years old when he became king. Here's the principle. God is the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority and both ruler and people are accountable to God. God is the ultimate authority and both rulers and people are accountable to God. By the way, the name Jehoash or Joash means Yahweh has bestowed, another way might be saying it, the Lord gave, the Lord gave. So it's it's interesting that his very name indicates that God gave him as a gift to Judah as their rightful heir, their king, right? So Jehoiada, the high priest, he makes a covenant. A covenant is a binding agreement, like a marriage vow. He makes a solemn contract between the Lord, the king, and the people. There are three parties to play here. Jehoiada is the high priest, The Lord is obviously the Lord of glory, the ruler. And then there's the people. And he makes a three-part covenant, a binding agreement between all three parties. And both the king and the people do what? It says they promise to follow the Lord. So we've gotten rid of evil. We've executed Athaliah. She's off the throne. Joash, the rightful heir, is now on the throne. And the king and the people have to promise to serve the king. Joash is not the king. God is the king. Joash is a king who serves under the authority of the Lord. And so they make that covenant, and the people promise to follow the king, Joash, and the king promises to rule what? According to God's law. So everybody operates under the umbrella of the authority of Almighty God. See, Jehoiada understood that ultimately God was the king over Israel, and human kings and queens served under his authority and under his rule. And we need to remember that. Those who are elected to office, or those who seize power, using power, understand you are never in charge. You're never in charge. By the way, that goes for us too. None of us are ever in charge. Now, we drink the Kool-Aid that says we are large and in charge. You know, all it takes is one germ. One little germ. And you can be flat on your back, losing weight the hard way, and, you know, you'll understand you're not in charge. All I need to do is just get a little nausea. Have you ever had a little nauseated? Yeah, it reminds you that you're really not in control really quickly at that point. So, a Jehoiada is an example to us of a faithful steward. He has been He inherited the position as high priest from his parent. He's in the family line of the Levites, of the priests, the sons of Aaron. Remember what a priest does. A priest is a mediator. A priest is a go-between. A priest is someone who goes to God on behalf of the people and who brings God to the people. So a priest is a go-between, and Jehoiada is a beautiful illustration of that. Jehoiada the priest leads God's people to renew their promises to follow God fully and forsake idols. He understood his position and his power didn't belong to him, but it belonged to God, and he used it faithfully to accomplish God's purposes, which was to remove an, an evil usurper, Athaliah, and install God's choice, Joash, on the throne. It's important to understand that Jehoiada was really functioning as a regent for Joash. Joash is how old? Seven years old. He's not competent to rule yet, although I know you have some very bright grandchildren who think they can rule. And I know you'll let them, right, from time to time. But he's seven years old. So a regent is someone who governs on behalf of another. A regent is someone who governs a kingdom when the sovereign is either in the minority, you know, not of age, Uh, disabled for whatever reason, or simply absent. Sovereign can be out of country doing business, and a regent is one who governs on their behalf. So they they govern temporarily on behalf of the rightful heir. Unfortunately, history is littered with regents who succumb to the siren song of power and wound up executing the heir and seizing the throne, and ruling and starting, starting a new dynasty after they've murdered the rightful heir, not Jehoiada. Jehoiada reminds us of John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness and there's a great deal of repentance. He's preaching, repent for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. And the Jews come to him and they say, wow, you've got a great deal of spiritual power and authority. Are you the Messiah? You sound like what we think he would sound like. And what did John say? I am not him. John knew who he was, and he knew who he was not. He knew what he was called to do, and it was not the Messiah, even though the people wanted to believe that he was. He was the forerunner. He was the one who came before the Messiah, the one who prepared the way for God's King, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great illustration for us. Both Jehoiada and John the Baptist illustrate, you know who you are before the Lord, and you better know who you're not. You must know what God has called you to do on planet earth, and you must know what he's not called you to do. He didn't give you life to sit on your blessed assurance and eat bonbons. He gave you life to accomplish purposes that he gave you life to accomplish. And it's imperative that you and I are spending much time in prayer to understand what God's purpose is so we can accomplish it. Jehoiada was really clear about that. He knew his loyalty was first and foremost to God alone. So based on that, he understood that he was going to rule on behalf of the rightful king, Joash, for a temporary period of time. And then after that, after Joash came of age, his role was going to shift into that of a counselor, advisor, and mentor. Does that remind you of parenting? Kind of? You know, when your children are very young, it's all on you, Correct? and as they age, we hopefully give them the baton, and they take it. Sometimes you have to kind of push it in their hand, right? (laughs) To make sure they take it. And then your responsibility changes, and now you become more of a counselor, advisor, and maybe actually a friend at some point in time, a mentor. Uh, So it's an interesting metaphor of Jehoiada's role shifting and our role as parents shifting. Now, words are fine, but actions are the proof of the pudding. So the people of Israel and the king had promised to follow God, and now they put muscle and bone behind their words. It says they went to the temple of Baal, tore it down, killed the priests, destroyed the altars, destroyed the idols, and then Jehoiada appointed the priests and Levites to their prescribed assignments that David had dictated. Remember, there had been no worship in the temple for the last seven years, six years. Athaliah was on the throne. It's like the doors to the church were locked. And it was forbidden to worship God. That's how they had to live at that point in time. So it says that Jehoiada took Joash to the king's house, seated him on the throne, and the text records that then the land had peace. When evil is vanquished and justice prevails, the result is, of course, joy and peace. I want you to flip over to 2 Kings 12. It says, in the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash became king. This is a summary, by the way. And he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Zidiah of Beersheba. Jehoash did right in the sight of the Lord all his days, in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. 2 Chronicles 24, by the way, is where we're going to be flipping to now, so you can just go there right now. 2 Chronicles 24 says that Jehoiada took two wives for Joash, and he became the father of sons and daughters. These verses are just a summary passage of his reign. It says he took the throne at seven, reigned 40 years, which means he died at age 47. Married two wives, fathered children. The text is a very, very interesting phrase. It says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, all his days, and you go, pretty good, and then the last few words have a disclaimer. He did what was right all his days, in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Interesting that that instruction bore fruit in Joash's life. Second Chronicles 24, verse 4, where we're going to be from going forward, says, Now it came about after this that Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord. He gathered the priests and Levites and said to them, go out to the cities of Judah and collect money from all Israel to repair the house of the Lord annually and, who sh- and do the matter quickly. But the Levites did not act quickly. Here's the principle. People who love God want to worship Him. People who love God want to worship Him. Worship is not a forced choice. It is a... Voluntary choice. We want to worship him. Now remember, as I mentioned, the house of the Lord had been deteriorated and destroyed and looted under Athaliah. Many articles had been stolen, the house was badly damaged. Apparently, it had been unused for years, even after Joash became king. Joash's command here to restore the temple probably occurred 20 years after his coronation. He's in his mid to late 20s. He's probably 27 years old at this point in time. It's interesting that Joash gave the command, not Jehoiada, to to restore the the, uh, house of the Lord. Uh, And Joash says, look, we need to restore the house of the Lord. We have to raise funds to do this. He commanded all the priests and Levites, you go throughout the land of Judah, collect the temple tax, the Mosaic temple tax, and we're going to use that to rebuild the house of the Lord. But the Levites were slow to act, and Joash rebukes Jehoiada, and then he changes his techniques, his methods. He bypasses the priests, and he issues a formal population to the entire population of Judah, you bring in the tithes, and I have a special box, a special chest, outside the temple. I put a hole in the top, you come in, when you worship, you drop your offerings into that box, and it brought fabulous results. It said the people gave freely, with generously, with joy, and workmen restored and repaired the temple according to the specifications that God had given David, And they even had gold and silver left over. They had so much gold and silver left over, they melted them down, and they made utensils for the house of God, for the worship of the Lord. And under Jehoiada's leadership, then Judah reinstated the daily sacrificial system. So it's taken probably 20 years after Athaliah's execution, Joash's coronation, for the temple service to be fully reinstated. And you say, wow, isn't that interesting? 20 years is a good slug of your life where you do not live with the regular worship of God. Do you know how much we take for granted here? Do you have any idea what we take for granted at our church? That every week you can come and the doors are open and God's word is proclaimed every week by competent Ministers in every classroom. You can hear what God has to say so you know it and so you can obey it. They didn't live like that for decades. We live in spiritual abundance. And God's going to hold us accountable for what we know. Amen? Okay, let's go to verse 15. 2 Chronicles twenty four fifteen. Some years later... Now when Jehoiada reached a ripe old age, he died. He was 130 years old at his death. They buried him in the city of David among the kings, because he had done well in Judah, in Israel, and to God in his house. But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the ashram and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem, for this their guilt." Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord, though he testified, though they testified against him, they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. Underline that. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash did not remember the kindness which his father Jehoiada had shown him, but he murdered his son. And as he died, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. Here's the principle. If you value the world's applause more than God's approval, you will abandon God and God's people. If you value the world's applause more than God's approval, you will abandon God and God's people. Here's what the lesson for us is. Joash had a moral compass, but it was external. It wasn't internal, right? He first followed Jehoiada toward God, and when Jehoiada died, he followed the princes of Judah away from God. He apparently did not have an intimate personal relationship with the Lord. He appears to be influenced by whoever he was with. Who you listen to, who you allow to influence you, will influence the direction of your life and the destination of your life. Be very, very careful who you allow to influence your thinking. Associate with people who encourage you to follow God. Don't associate with people who lead you away from God. Hebrews tells us we're to hang out together and encourage one another in the love of good deeds. So how did this occur? Well, it says the princes of Judah came to Joash and did what? They bowed down before him. And you say, well, in the vernacular, that's called sucking up, right? It's a sand. It's called flattery. It's telling people something that is not true because you want something from them, right? Well, they wanted something from Joash. What do they want? They wanted to reverse Jehoiada's policy of worshiping Yahweh, and they wanted to go back to Baal worship, like they had under Athaliah. And Joash agreed with them. It says they abandoned the worship of God and worshiped idols. And even God, in His mercy, when they rejected Him, He sent prophets to them to call them to turn away from their sin and turn back to Him. And one of them was Jehoiada's own son, named Zechariah. And he stood up above the temple square and told them that because they had forsaken God, God had forsaken them. And Joash said, stone him to death. And they stoned him to death. In the very courtyard of the temple of the Lord. Joash so hated the truth that he murdered the son of the man who had saved his life when he was an infant. Did we say sin makes you stupid? Did we say sin corrupts your human judgment? Well, we've got a couple of examples here. Here's the hard truth. Killing the messenger does not invalidate the message. Refusing to obey God's commands simply means that you are choosing to live in opposition to reality instead of in alignment to reality. You really cannot harm, break, or alter God's law just because you refuse to obey it. God's law says what? Do not steal. Just because you choose to steal doesn't mean you change the law. It just means that the consequences of stealing now go into effect in your life. That's all, right? So, the really hard news is, is when you forsake God, there are times He will give you your way. Romans 1. God will never force you to have a relationship with Him. God is a gentleman. He wants you to have free will. He says, you can have as deep a relationship with me as you choose. I give you that right. Joash, you have free will. You can choose to follow me, or you can choose to reject me, but both have consequences. Verse 23. Now, it happened at the turn of the year that the army of the Arameans came up against him, and they came to Judah and Jerusalem, destroyed all the officials of the people from among the people, and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Indeed, the army of the Arameans came with a very small number of men. Yet the Lord delivered a very great army into their hands, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. When they had departed from him, for they left him very sick, his own servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest, and murdered him on his own bed. So he died, and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. Here's the principle. Rejecting God inevitably leads to judgment. I'm not telling you you can already know, right? Rejecting God inevitably leads to judgment. It's interesting, the very last words of Zechariah were what? May the Lord see and avenge. It didn't take very long for that to take place. It said at the turn of the year, which was the springtime, by the way, in ancient times, you only did warfare in the spring and summer, so you didn't have to fight wintertime, right? Judah was invaded by a very small army of the Arameans. That's Syria. They were in the north and the east. And it says they defeated a much larger Israelite army says, they plundered the land and sent the spoil to Damascus, the capital city of Aram. And it says that Joash was bedridden because of an illness. And he was murdered by two of his own servants. And he was murdered because he had murdered Zechariah, Jehoiada's son, for telling him the truth. Now, you've heard the old vernacular, what goes around... There are consequences for following the Lord. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. There are consequences for rejecting the Lord as well. The lesson of Joash's life is incredibly sobering. He was not supposed to survive. He survived by a miracle and God's hand throughout this process, if it hadn't been for Jehoiada and jehoshabeth he would have been murdered as a one-year-old. So his life was a miracle from the beginning that he was actually able to be saved from death as a child. Number two, his life was a miracle, and God had arranged for a godly high priest to mentor his life, to teach him about God's word and God's way, to teach him how to make wise choices, To influence him so that he would restore the worship of God in the land. And he did that. He began extraordinarily well. But he didn't have personal conviction in his own heart about God himself that I am accountable to God and that I have to make my own decisions to follow God. You've heard the phrase God has no grandchildren, God has no grandchildren. Your children, my children, your grandchildren, my grandchildren, every single soul has to make their own decision to follow Jesus or not follow Jesus. And of course, we pray our eyes out and our heart out and our souls out that they would listen to the Lord and follow the Lord as opposed to doing the life of Joash and living apart from God with all those evil consequences that follow that. So when Jehoiada the mentor dies, his conscience was not internal, it was external. He was influenced by the evil princes of the nation of Judah, and he loved the applause of the world more than the approval of God. And you and I face that in our world today, because the opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ is growing, and it's going to continue to grow. We face that opposition. And we need to be extremely clear in our own minds, what we believe, why we believe it, who we follow, and why we follow who we follow. Because you will be influenced and subject to that influence by the world to stop following the Lord and begin to following the world. So Joash is a metaphor of someone who began so well, who experienced the blessings of the Lord in almost incomparable measure, but because he didn't have a personal intimate relationship with the Lord that he took care of, it deteriorated or it never was there to start with, and at the end of the day his true colors came out and he wound up being an enemy of God instead of an obedient son of God, even though he had been blessed beyond measure by God in the first place. It's an extraordinarily sorrowful tale, but it's an extraordinarily useful one for us to remember. One of the things I pray for all of us in this class on a regular basis, that we will finish well. We will finish well. You don't want to hit the finish line, stumbling, crawling, or quit before you get there. Finishing well means fixing your eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 4, and staying true to your calling, and walking with Jesus one day at a time, and not letting your relationship with the Lord uh, deteriorate or take for granted. And I think one of the blessings or benefits, if you will, spiritual benefits of Pastor Roger's illnesses, man, it has put a knife in our hearts in the sense of saying, we really do walk a day at a time by faith and you take nothing for granted. Everything comes from the Lord day by day by day. Okay, let's summarize and and then Tom will come and do prayer and praise. Principle number one, effective change depends on prayer, planning, and persistence. You must continue to pray and persistently pray. Number two, In this life, there is an unceasing war between righteousness and wickedness. If you love good, you will fight evil. There is no neutrality. You must choose. It is a binary choice. Number three, God is the final authority, and both rulers and people are ultimately accountable to him. Number four, we saw the good thing. People who love God want to worship him. Number five, if you value the world's applause more than God's approval, you will abandon God and his people. So watch watch your heart. And lastly, rejecting God inevitably leads to judgment. By the way, the judgment may be delayed, but it will never be eliminated. There's always consequences to our choices. So let Joash's life be a good illustration for us, and may we commit ourselves to finish well. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. Now that you know yeah. do